Welcome to the Libertarian Podcast from the Hoover Institution. I'm your host, Tom Church, and I'm here with the Libertarian, Professor Richard Epstein. Richard is the Peter and Kirsten Bedford Senior Fellow here at the Hoover Institution. He is the Lawrence A. Tisch Professor of Law at NYU and is a senior lecturer at the University of Chicago. Richard, this week, you've written about a case called 303 Creative versus Alanis, decided by the Tenth Circuit. Um, it's a case that you actually signed an amicus brief about because the Supreme Court is going to uh, look at the case. Um, it involves Lori Smith, a website designer in Colorado, who is seeking preemptive protection from possible sanctions from Colorado's Anti-Discrimination Act. And she's doing this because she's a devout Christian who will make websites for anyone, but has decided not to do that for uh, gay couples, specifically for uh, uh, wedding websites. Now, how is this different from the Masterpiece Cake Shop Supreme Court case that's already been decided and looked into, I think, a very similar issue? Uh, well, it turns out in terms of its basic factual pattern, I don't think there's much difference on the ultimate issue, but there's a huge difference with respect to the way in which the record is organized and the way in which the case will be decided. Uh, in the Masterpiece case, what happened is there was a charge that was actually brought against Jack Phillips, and there were a bunch of hearings. And in the course of those hearings, one of the commissioners sort of announced that people like you are responsible for the Holocaust and religion is the opiate of the people or something worse. And so when it was decided by the court, there were a lot of splits of opinion one way or another. Uh, but the record said, we're not going to allow it to go in this particular case because there was demonstrable sign of bias and um, incorrect attitudes that were done in the hearing. And so we're going to remove the case and send it back for remand, that is to be reheard. In this case, it, it turned out that Ms. Smith did not want to have to go through that kind of a hearing. And so what she did is she brought a preemptive action, which you're allowed to do, generally speaking, in which you say, I think I'm under danger of prosecution in a future case on this. And I want a declaratory judgment because I don't want to have to be put to the very painful choice of having to decide to abandon my faith or in fact to uh, go into this thing and then face legal sanctions of both a monetary and a personal nature. So why I want this cleared up. Uh, the Colorado uh, Commission tried to defend on the grounds that she didn't have standing, uh, saying better to wait for this to happen. It may or may not happen. Um, everybody, I think, agreed that the way the statute was put together, the conflict was inevitable. It turns out that the jurisdiction invests in the commission to bring cases on of its own if it so choose. But more importantly, for these purposes, somebody could go into the particular establishment, be refused service for grounds that they know they're not going to get it for, and refer it over to the commission. And the commission is then duty bound to investigate. Uh, so the question you have to ask is whether or not you think that in the entire state of Colorado, everybody is going to decide not to challenge this kind of behavior. And they said, look, the probability of this is overwhelmingly high. So we're going to decide it on the merits. And at that particular point, uh, this case is different because you just have the naked statute and a clear action that seems to be in violation of it, and you have to decide whether or not individual liberties will prevail over <coughs> statutory command on the non-discrimination law. Uh, the way the Supreme Court is taking this case, they made it into a freedom of expression case. Uh, in fact, I think it is a combination of freedom of expression and freedom of religion. I think the two of them are inexorable. You know, you can't get them apart. If you go back to the flag salute case, for example, 
it wasn't just any old person saying, I won't salute the flag. It was a situation in which you had Jehovah's Witnesses who said to salute a flag is to engage in a form of idolatry, which is impermissible under their religion. So in thinking about this thing, I think you have to see it as both a free expression and a free exercise case. Uh, the Supreme Court decided to put it under the one rubric, uh, but the issues of religion will not be far behind when it comes to its resolution. Can I ask you, in, in the brief, you, uh, you, you, you look at this question presented, uh, whether applying this, this law will compel an artist to speak or stay silent if that violates free speech. And you've already gotten into, you know, I was going to ask, how is this not freedom of religion and not, not free speech? But then this hinges on the concept of compelled speech. I mean, can you tell me what are the, what are the limits of compelled speech? It almost seems like interstate commerce, right? It's, it's a business as opposed to speech. Um, well, look, if the, that's the first distinction that I think one has to sort of get out of this particular case is to whether or not this would count as commercial speech, which may or may not be subject to a lower degree of protection than other forms of speech. And I think the general answer is that if we're going to talk about commercial speech, uh, we're not going to talk about expressive activities, which in fact uh, engage serious ideas. So the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal both published papers. And they are in fact commercial occupations and they get subscription fees and ad revenues and so forth. But nobody says that they're not entitled to protection because they're in commercial speech. Uh, the protection that you're talking about for commercial speech would go to advertisements of one kind or another. So uh, the commercial speech cases involve such things as to whether or not you could suppress the price of liquor that's going to be sold online. Uh, can you suppress the fees that lawyers are going to charge one way or another? Uh, can you require pharmacists not to disclose prices associated with the goods or services? And the theory about this argument is that the, on the one side, they're saying you can't run a competitive market unless you have this pricing information. And on the other side, they start to think that it's inconsistent with professionalism or some other kind of rationale. And in the 1970s, a large number of cases came up and uh, some of the very strong opinions, most notably by Harry Blackman, uh, pretty much demolished the notion uh, that you are going to treat these cases as commercial cases without any kind of protection, uh, when in fact uh, you must have this information in order to be able to operate a competitive market. Uh, that's not what's really at stake in this particular case. What's at stake is not the prices that she's going to charge. The question is, can she refuse service to a certain class of individuals on the grounds that it's inconsistent with her conscience? Now, mind you, you know, if you're in business and you start turning down people, uh, you're losing revenues. You're not only losing revenues from the people who directly won't uh, provide you who want the kinds of services you won't provide, but in a very cohesive gay community, you're going to find lots of other people who are going to say, we're not going to go to this place anyhow, even for services that they're prepared to supply. And so when people start to make this kind of statement, they have a very weighty reason on the other side. And so therefore, it is perfectly appropriate uh, to call all of this stuff expressive behavior. And as far as I'm concerned, you could toggle very easily between the religion and the speech clauses. I would have preferred the court to do both. Now, the other issue is what counts as coercion. And here, the strong definition of coercion is you go over those people and you put a gun to their head and say, make this particular wedding case for this particular woman. And, and that is shortly not involved in here. 
Uh, but what they're doing is they're saying, unless you do the thing that we have asked you to do, you're not going to be able to do something for which you are otherwise entitled to do. Uh, so in the flag salute cases, it was never the question as to whether or not you would tell these children they had to say the Pledge of Allegiance. The issue is they would be expelled from school. And in this particular case, the argument is that they're going to be expelled from the market. Uh, so what happens is if you put an undue burden on somebody when they refuse to engage in an activity that you require of them, i.e. to sacrifice some civil liberty that they otherwise have, that would be regarded as coercion. And this stems from a, a kind of a long tradition called duress of goods, a sort of technical area. And the, uh, what happens is you go in and you bring your goods to somebody and you, he says, I'll repair them for $15. And you go back and you want to pick them up. And he says, well, I want $20 now. And the answer is, well, he's saying you could just simply go without your goods or you could pay me the 20 bucks. I'm giving you a choice. Uh, the point is he's taking away the one choice that was contractually protected, namely the right to get the goods back for $15. So the rule was he could sue if he wanted to to get it for $15. Or in fact, he could pay the $20 and then sue in order to get the refund and perhaps some penalty on top of everything else after that. And that's the kind of situation we're having here. What she is saying, I'm entitled to have both the business on the one hand and to express my religion on another hand. Um, and there are all sorts of other people that can go. I'm not a common carrier. I wouldn't get into the business, but providing personalized distinctive services are never the work of common carriers. Uh, a common carrier is somebody who gives you a service and you sit in a chair and your job is not to make a mess or a ruckus. Here you're asking for individualized work and the whole notion that there's a common carrier or a duty to serve in connection with these kinds of activities is utterly foreign to our entire history uh, of common law. It is only when you start getting statutes that redefine uh, things as public accommodation, a much broader category, that you start to see the situation in which people are prepared to say that even in a competitive market, we can, under the anti-discrimination laws, force you to serve. And the argument in that has always been in these cases is that mere competition, at least under modern constitutional law, is essentially not a strong protected right. Uh, that's what the 1937 revolution did. So you need only a relatively weak uh, kind of government justification to overcome it. And the discrimination laws and common consent, not in my view, uh, meet that particular standard. Uh, but if speech and religion are at stake, it's a much higher situation. And so the older view that the anti-discrimination laws prevail in economic issues is not necessarily the case and ought never to be the case when it comes to the question as to whether or not uh, these things relate to core personal beliefs. Uh, Justice Brennan, in a case called Roberts against the JCC, was prepared to say the JCC had to take in women as members. But in the same opinion, what he said is it's absolutely crazy to say that we have to have a non-discrimination law when it comes to marriage so that, you know, oh, are you going to be allowed to turn down Miss Jones because she's a Christian? Uh, of course you're allowed to do that. Are you allowed to turn down Miss Jones because she's a female? Of course you're allowed to do that. So what he tried to do was to uh, create a line between protected spaces on the one hand, uh, in which freedom of association prevailed, and the non-discrimination law with respect to the outward-facing activities of large numbers of people. I always thought the distinction was unstable. And if you actually look at this particular case, uh, it's not a huge business. It's not the JCC. It's somebody operating a kind of a small uh, sort of situation. And the issue is it on the intimate association side of the line, or is it on the general public, public accommodation side of the line? 
in my view, you don't want to draw that distinction. If it's not a monopoly situation, I think what happens is you just let people choose whom they want and everyone can go elsewhere. And so that's why in this particular case, in order to make things out, uh, there's efforts on the part of the state to say that in these highly competitive markets, there's really a monopoly bear lurking in the woods somewhere. I need to know more about this because the the 10th Circuit did decide this in part due to this specific interpretation of monopoly markets versus competitive markets. And, and I want to ask you that in context of, well, does this case look differently or or get decided differently on your end if it's 1952 than 2022 when um, there are many, many more options uh, for for you know this consumer base? Well, let me put it to this way. This is a more general question, which is uh, virtually every market that you're talking about now is given the reduction in cost of information and transformation, the number of plausible substitutes always starts to increase. So even if you're thinking about this as a straight antitrust type of situation, generally speaking, uh, the two factors that I've mentioned, loosening up of both communication and transportation markets, means that the definition of a relevant market on both product line and on geography should be expanded. So the answer is these cases are gonna be much weaker in this particular situation. What is common, however, is if there is a monopoly, regardless of which period, then the usual kinds of remedies can apply. In some circumstances, you try to break them up if they could function as freestanding and independent units. Uh, that means, for example, in the merger law, it's relatively easy to say, if you're going to say have two companies in a market and they're going to merge into one company, this giant company, we're just not going to let it happen. And if you block the merger from taking place under the Hart Scott Rodino statute, uh, what it means is you don't have to unscramble the omelet after that thing has been done. Uh, but if in fact the whole two things have come together, the remedial stuff of trying to take apart a big corporation that is fully integrated and undo it uh, years after the merger was put together, that becomes a remedial nightmare. In this particular case, um, why it is that anybody is thinking about this as a monopoly, uh, when it turns out if this person is a monopoly, uh, then in any city in Colorado, you probably have 100 local monopolists. And if you think about this as the residential market, there are no two houses that are perfectly fungible. The lots are on different part of the streets, the southern exposures in one case, but not in the other case. Somebody added a gable and somebody took out a picket fence. Uh, so if you look at the housing market, no two houses are identical. Uh, if that means that you have in in a city like Colorado Springs, a thousand monopolists, uh, that's crazy. What you really say is the whole purpose of competition is to try to get some kind of super competitive profit by distinguishing your property in another way against somebody who's still going to be a close competitor. That's why two movies are close competitors, one in the same market. That's why two songs are close competitors. That's why two radio stations are close competitors. Each of them will jigger its format or its content in order to be able to select some fraction of the population that will gravitate in its way rather than everybody else. Uh, so differentiation of product is a highly positive sort of development and we ought to encourage it. And if this woman has a niche and she can fill it, uh, other people can fill other niches. And so what you don't want to do is to create a situation where you think you can only have a competitive market where everybody serves every particular customer in the market. And in fact, that is not what the law in Colorado said. It doesn't say that a uh, gay baker has to take a fundamentalist Christian. Uh, what it says is you can't discriminate on certain kinds of ground. 
Uh, and the point is discrimination is the essence of competition. And what they're doing is kind of confusing it all. Now, if you're a common carrier, you have the only inn on the road from London to Oxford in 1400, uh, then the stuff about transportation rings true, right? Uh, there is no place that you can go because if you're trying to travel at night and you got an ox cart, you can go 400 feet, but you can't go four miles. You're going to get mugged in the woods. Today, you know, you're in a car and there are 20 places along the interstate highway and they have independent policies. Well, that's a highly competitive market, notwithstanding the fact uh, that it is covered by the anti-discrimination laws as a public accommodation. I much prefer the older definition because I think competition is a dynamic process and it brings more people into the market. So think about this as a question of consumer choices. What you do is you have these fairly heavy restrictions on who could practice and you say, aha, we now have a perfectly competitive market because we have 100 players and every one of these 100 players has to serve everybody. And then we say, well, let's change the rule and you can start to pick your niche. And now all of a sudden you got 150 players and any given person in that market has 120 options. So you only have 80% of the total, but since the total is 50% larger, you're ahead of the game. And there's absolutely no recognition in this opinion of the sort of the dynamic ways in which the ability of niche players to enter a market will expand its overall shape. And so if they put this poor woman out of business because they're gonna say this, that means there's one less player in the market one less option for fundamentalist Christians to go to in order to get their services, while at the same time, you just simply have to look online um, and just type in words like gay-themed wedding services, Colorado, and a bunch of places will come up, and they basically cater to the gay market. Now, they may take other customers, may be fine, they may not have gay owners, none of this really matters. The point about it is, uh, under the Colorado statute, those kinds of things are illegal, even if they'll serve everybody, because you're not allowed to communicate what to indicate in the kinds of things that you put online, a preference for turning one group as opposed to another. And that's also quite crazy. If you want to run a gay service and you could provide things for gay and lesbian couples that somebody else cannot, by all means, you should be able to um, exercise and to do it. Uh, the odd thing is why it is that you could get 50 or 100 sites like that in the state of Colorado or around the nation. And then this lone baker is sitting there uh, wanting to make a cake is going to be subject to the full power of the state. Um, what they did is they started to talk in the opinion about marginalized customers. You want to talk about somebody who's marginalized, try Miss Smith. Uh, you want to talk about somebody who's not marginalized, uh, talk about any gay operation in the United States today. Uh, we celebrate Pride Month. This is not the kind of thing that happens when you're talking about a group that's on the ropes and they're well-organized, they're powerful and they're coherent. And I think they are deserve whatever market success what they want, but it's one thing to succeed in the market. And it's another thing to put together a state commission which wants to shut down people who don't do it. The libertarian allows people essentially to pair up with whom they want in competitive markets and allows them not to deal with those whom they do not want. That recipe will increase the size of the market and overall levels of consumer satisfaction. What the statute will do is contract the market on the one hand and subject certain people to what I regard as Orwellian sanction. The word re-education in any kind of a public statute should send uh, warning bells aloud to everybody, whether on the right or the left side of the political spectrum. You've been listening to the Libertarian Podcast with Richard Epstein. If you'd like to hear more from Richard, you can head over to his weekly column, The Libertarian, published on Defining Ideas at Hoover.org. 
If you found this conversation thought-provoking, please share it with your friends and rate the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're tuning in. For Richard Epstein, I'm Tom Church. See you next week. This podcast is a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society and improve the human condition. For more information about our work or to listen to more of our podcasts or watch our videos, please visit hoover.org.